With so many new companies starting up since the pandemic and so much media vying for our attention, how does anyone stand out? Today, we talk with one of New Hampshire's leading brand gurus about his insights, as well as about his own entrepreneurial journey launching his diverse business empire. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, chief growth officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Yes. Um, this one's going to be a fun one today. You oh, know. I'm looking forward to it. This I, is going to fly by. It's just going to fly by, so everybody get ready. But um, in the spirit of perhaps our guest and, and some of his uh, his perhaps well most well-known work and, and companies... Um, Let's talk a little bit about like favorite commercials. We've talked, you know, we've talked to folks in media before and in marketing and things like that, um, and maybe alluded to to certain things. But um, like you said, sort of in the intro, uh, there's there's a lot going on out there. A lot of people vying for our attention. But what sticks? It's you know amazing. It's just like this, these short little art forms, right? Mm-hmm. We all know bad commercials, and then we forget them. But the really good ones stick with you for life, or somehow it just. T- Rent-free and takes up room in your brain. <laughs> and, you know, I can't remember someone's name, but I can remember the Staples commercial. Yeah. Word for word. And that's one of my favorite, right? It, mm-hmm. You know, it's that back-to-school, especially yeah. when you have kids. They don't have to run that commercial anymore because it's that time of year. It captured the spirit, <laughs> you know, and everyone knows what I'm talking about, you yep. know? it's. Yep. You hear the announcer, it's that time of year again, and you hear, it's the most wonderful time. (laughs) And you just see this dad smiling with glee, gliding with his staples cart through the store, and two kids trudging back and back of them, and it's like, they're going back. And it just captures every parent's experience with back to school. Like, (laughs) thank you. It's been summer, (laughs) but thank you. Send them back. And, like I can bring up the commercial A one, and they know exactly what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. It is a beautiful piece of advertising. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. What about that you? Makes, what um, sticks well, out? Well, it's for funny you? as you were uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, and I'm like, oh my god, what one? What one really sticks for some reason? And I have no idea why. And this isn't like like a pivotal thing, but like the old Wendy's commercials with Dave Thomas for some reason, <laughs> I have no idea why. But the ones that I would say like more more current. Are the I guess it's Allstate commercials? Oh um, yes, and you know Allstate, Progressive, Jake. Geico. They're all trying to like do some similar stuff, and uh, it's it's you know it's memorable. It's it's intense. It's around like insurance. Well, <laughs> and, like when and, they hit humor right, yeah. you know, like the the one um, State Farm they did was the husband's on the phone, the wife catches him on the phone. He's talking kind of you know in a husky oh. voice, and she thinks <laughs> yeah. he's having an affair, and she's like, "Who's on the phone?" He's like, "Jake." Jake from State Farm. <laughs> She's like, well, Jake, she sounds ugly or something like that. Oh it's just, God. it's so funny. The other one that gets me though is, is like the basic tried and true, like, you know, repeat things three times it sticks with it. Well, it's true because mm-hmm. my children got obsessed with Alan's Wayside Furniture, Alan's oh Wayside Furniture, Alan's Wayside Furniture. Don't miss it. I hear that <laughs> from the backseat of my car. Now that you mention it. <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that they give to the Humane Society and all of that. Too. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> See, I, like, it's I know it. Brilliant I know it. It's because there. it's memorable. It's, it's simple. 
stuck. And your children will repeat it to you. So when you finally go to get furniture, you're like, huh, I where should we go? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should go there. All right. Well, let's let's find out uh, more about what's behind all this. Yeah, let's talk this. to the experts. Come on. Oh, man. So our guest this week is Travis York. Travis is a longtime investor and creative entrepreneur, bringing his entrepreneurial spirit to a wide range of business ventures over his 20-plus year career. He's the founder and CEO of York Creative Collective, a portfolio of privately owned and creative ventures working together to maximize their growth potential. Deeply involved with their brands within the collective, Travis is the CEO of GYK Antler, an independent, integrated, creative agency representing a diverse roster of clients. GYK serves as the growth engine powering YCC, providing creative marketing services to both its brand, clients, and ventures in the portfolio. He's also the co-founder and CEO of video production company Big Brick Productions, co-founder and executive chairman for York Athletics Manufacturing, a family-owned DTC performance footwear company, advisor and investor to Noble & Cooley Drum Company, a historic family-owned premium drum manufacturer, and an advisor and investor to In Torch Pro, a sports media company committed to changing the way fans and athletes interact. Travis, welcome. Hello. Um, Are you just I exhausted all I know. the time? You just made me exhausted reading that. <laughs> oh, my like, word. Everything you just said triggered something. <laughs> well, and we'll help unpack and, and we'll, we'll you know, bring you to the car afterwards and make sure yeah. you're okay. Okay. Um, I don't. So when I when I read lengthy bios like that, there's a reason and there's a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because you're brilliant. Because you've got so much. <laughs> Come on. Well, right, for now. You've got so much that you are involved with, that you have accomplished, that you've done. Um, I have the utmost respect for you uh, in doing everything from what? Drums, creative advertising, athletic wear, sports media. Question is, though, here, what is the common thread or the common draw for these particular companies or type of companies? Sure. Let's start there. Two things, creativity and quality. Right on. So I think growing up in the advertising agency world, mm-hmm. uh, you – Really big agencies, you work on fewer accounts. Really small agencies, you work on many accounts. I was fortunate early in my career to be an early internet guy. And so although I was in an enormous agency, because I had this subject matter expertise a lot of people didn't have, I was thrown on all these big projects. Mm. And so it becomes this like controlled chaos of different (laughs) clients, different projects, different business models, different things. And so that mindset has carried forward into my entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial life, where I look at it as uh, it's that same mindset. You're you're solving problems, you're positioning, packaging, and promoting things, mm. and they're all things that have a creative bent to them. And you know, my taste level always likes stuff that's quality and craft and 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 made in a good way. And so, my brain just works that way. Uh, and so, whether they're a client that we're servicing mm-hmm. within the agency or whether it's a venture I'm supporting, I'm doing the same stuff uh, regardless. Now, did the entrepreneurial bug get planted early? Can you talk about what family business you grew up with and how that might have influenced you? Very early. So uh, I was fortunate to have a few uh, successful entrepreneurs in my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, My great uncle, Peter Agrafiotis, was actually one of the first advertising and marketing guys in New Hampshire. Uh, His company was called Agrafiotis and Associates Advertising Agency. Oh my God. So that they would be first in the phone book. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So like an early innovator. I mean, he'd be like 120 if you were alive. Wow. Uh, My grandfather, 
father was the president of a shoe manufacturing company. Oh, wow. And then my parents ran a retail sporting goods store. So those were three uh, significant influences in my life. Okay. And I saw the freedom and flexibility that came along with having your own companies. Mm. I also had a front row seat to the stress and the pressure of doing it because um, you're never really off. off. Uh, but I, I, there was something about that that was intriguing to me. So I think very early on, I started dabbling with you know the typical stuff, you know, starting little businesses that did this or that or the other thing. And mm. then ultimately, once I found advertising, marketing, you know, uh, branding to be my, my calling, uh, I figured out ways to turn that into something entrepreneurial. I love that. Wow. Now, the story your parents are, I mean, where it was an institution in Manchester. Yes. Can you talk a bit about, you know, what the store was? And then what were the lessons you learned growing up watching them run this business um, that was so much part of the community? So Indian Head Athletics was the name of their retail sporting goods store. It actually started as the outlet store for the footwear manufacturing company. So uh, okay. the first thing is innovation or evolution, I should say. Like if, if they just tried to stay what they were at the beginning, uh, they wouldn't have had the longevity that they had. Mm. And so over the years, the sports that they carried – um, they eventually started selling more to teams and organizations. Uh, they had a screen printing part of their business. So when somebody came in for equipment, they could then sell them uh, screen printing. And then they started doing things to basically build their own little uh, uh, empire in buying the real estate that they uh, were in, uh -huh. in renting the parking spots that they were in. <laughs> so they created this entrepreneurial ecosystem for themselves mm -hmm. that gave them some diversity of revenue and gave them some interesting opportunities. The thing that I always found fascinating as kind of that next generation and as somebody who grew up on the internet, they never had a huge interest in embracing technology mm. or um, selling online or things like that. And that kind of turned into one of the things that made them an institution, honestly. Like when you went into Indian Head Athletics, it stayed an authentic, like old school sports buying experience up until the day that they retired. And that was largely because they were still writing out receipts and they were they, the people that worked there knew everything about the equipment and you got to try it all out. Nice. And so sometimes those tried and true ways of doing things work just fine. Right, right. Because you think now well, going to like a big box uh, sports store, it's just, there's just, you know, minions who yes. don't know much about anything. That and and you're basically the expert because you've probably done more research on the stuff you're wanting to buy absolutely. than most of these folks know, anyway. So absolutely, yeah. There's absolutely a value in in changing some some things, but not everything. Yes. So interestingly, in my businesses, you know, I own the building that I'm in, and I have an advertising agency as well as a video production company. It's all kind of analogous to the mm. way they operated, just in my world. And so I don't think I realized that until I reflected on it a little bit more. Um, but the reality is there's some similarities in the way that we've structured things or think through things, even though it's a different time and different place. Nice. Now, our August issue is always dedicated to the top family-owned businesses in New Hampshire. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing many family businesses, and they come in all kinds of flavors and shapes and sizes. But... Inevitably, there comes a time in that family business where the next generation decides, am I going in the business or am I going my own way? So can you talk about what put you on the your path and deciding to go into advertising, marketing, and, and on the where you've ended up now? So interestingly, there's five boys in my family. Yep. And all of us played sports to some degree. 
And any of us could have been like groomed to take over the family business. I think what my parents probably realized is unless there was a very different desire to do things differently, like go online or open lots of locations, Mm. or they kind of had a unique thing for the time of their career. Um, you know, being able to be a mom and pop local store, Mm -hmm. owning your real estate, having these different things, it would be hard to replicate that. Um, and so I think they must've unconsciously realized that if one of us were really interested, we would, you know, probably explore it or pursue it, but they never made it feel like that was something we had to think about Mm -hmm. or had to consider. Uh, and so for me, I always had a challenge balancing my creative side with my athletic side, uh, And actually, I learned to embrace that relatively young because I kind of associated myself in my early years as much more of like an athlete or a jock. Like, Mm. you know, I was in a family of boys. My parents owned a sporting goods store. I played all the different sports. But really underneath it all, I liked to draw and I loved music. And I started getting into fashion uh, at a relatively young age. And I had a hard time trying to figure out what like crowd I kind of fit in because of that. And for me, I just kind of recognized that I can float. Like, I don't need to like pick a crowd. I don't need to try to conform to a a group. Mm -hmm. I can kind of be who I want to be, how I want to be it. And then finding a career path that enabled that was something I kind of put my mind to. So I originally thought I was going to go into radio broadcasting actually, uh, because I thought that would be a way for me to bring that creative uh, side to life. But I don't like getting up early. Um, <laughs> I cannot pretend to be in a good mood if I'm not. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I can maybe pretend, but you'll see right through it. Yeah, right. And, and then back then, that was terrestrial radio. You'd have to move all over the place. Right. Mm-hmm. And I knew my heart was in the Northeast. So um, thankfully, being a first-generation internet kid, uh, it kind of put me in advertising and marketing, but in a way that was new and different and exciting at the time. Yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit, that sort of early internet marketing. You attended BU. I did. And you were um, introduced to it, the internet marketing and, and whatnot there? Or how did what was that story And so being at BU? I started thinking I was going to go into broadcast journalism because uh-huh. uh, Howard Stern went there. And, <laughs> oh, uh, right, yeah. right. Oh, God. Uh, yes. Uh, when I started diving in, and I just mentioned my concerns on the radio side, Uh, I started being intrigued by, uh, they had a degree called mass communication Mm. and you could focus on an area and one of them was advertising. And so I started being intrigued by it. Um, I mean, even going back to the Indian Head Athletics days, my parents used to let me write the commercials, uh, the radio commercials, (laughs) the TV commercials, and then I used to be in those commercials. Um, When I thought I had an interest in radio, I worked at Rock 101 when I was in high school Mm -hmm. as an intern and saw how they did the advertising and that kind of stuff. So it was somewhat intriguing to me. But I ultimately always believed in trying to find internships, uh, even at a really young age, just go work for free for somebody. I mean, if they pay you, great, but just get some experience. And I fell into I fell into an internship at a very traditional large corporation in Massachusetts, and they had a PR agency. And as an intern, I was interacting with their PR agency. And the guy that owned their PR agency had partnered with a technologist, and he would create all the content, and the mm-hmm. technologist would put them on this thing called a website. And they were <laughs> starting, they called it a content development shop. And it was really so large companies would have something to put on this thing called a website. And my last day of my internship, this individual was visiting the the client, and 
I guess he didn't even realize I was an intern. I think he thought I was like his client. And when I revealed that I'm an intern, I go to BU, <laughs> I actually live in Boston. He's like, oh. And that was a Friday. And on Monday, they called and they said, would you like to help us build this uh, this content development agency? And I said, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, they basically offered me a job when mm. I was a sophomore in college. And that ultimately was a very early internet marketing company. We didn't know it at the time. Um, but I, I went on a really fun ride of figuring out how to market on this thing called the internet. And it was cool because it was a bit of a wild, wild west. Like as a young guy who didn't have any proper experience, everyone was trying to figure it out. Yeah. So in some ways, not knowing too much was really helpful. Uh, and I think, frankly, I've carried that into a lot of my career paths and interests. Like, know enough to be dangerous, but not so much that you're going to be <laughs> jaded by it or, yep. or try to just replicate something. Yeah. Um, and so that's how it started. Wow. So how did the path go? You know, can I talk about, did you go the agency paths along the way, uh, which is not an easy industry by any means? Um and at what point did you decide, what made you make the jump that a lot of people think they want to make but never get to, which is, I, I could do this. Sure. Like, I, I should have my own shop. So in 98 is when, 1998 is when I started at that content development company. Yep. I think I was employee number six. Um, by the end of 99, we considered ourselves an internet marketing agency. I was supposed to graduate college in May of 2000, and I accelerated uh, taking classes to get done early because I saw this opportunity that if I didn't capitalize, I wouldn't be able to capitalize mm -hmm, on it. Mm -hmm. They gave me stock options. The company sold right at that time. And so if I had waited to graduate, uh, I mean, Google it. The internet bubble burst right. <laughs> in yeah. that next six months, right? Right, right? So although I didn't end up with the... Uh, you know, the return off of those stock options or, you know, the, the crazy stuff that was going on at that time. What I did land was a really cool job. And I was, for my age, overpaid, but for <laughs> what I was delivering, <laughs> underpaid, right? Because right. I was so young. Right. And so it led to a seven-year run of mergers, acquisitions in advertising and marketing. Ultimately, we were owned by Havas out of Paris, France. Mm. In fact, our first acquirer was Dan Snyder. Uh, who used the money to buy the the Redskins, now the Guardians. Oh, wow. uh, and he just sold them for six point something billion dollars. Oh, so that was money from back wow. when he bought us in the <laughs> early 2000s, which is kind of a wild story. Yeah. So somewhat controversial figure. Mm -hmm. um, but I look at it as the boot camp of the advertising and marketing business because it got so big through mergers and acquisitions. It was different business models, different offices, different cultures, different clients. And so I got to see how it all worked. And because I was ultimately a higher gun on all these really interesting clients trying to figure out internet and digital stuff, I got to have more experience than I would have. Um, but ultimately, I had that entrepreneur, like, I need to have my own thing at some point. The best advice I got, he was actually a mentor from that first internship I had. Uh, he said, why would you start something from scratch? Like, it just seems like a big headache to start something from scratch. And you're going to have to figure out all kinds of stuff that's outside of your interests and your skill set. I mean, even down to like what an invoice is going to look like. Right. Mm -hmm. And and his recommendation was buy a franchise, buy into a franchise, like something that's tried and true, that's going to work. You know, I think he even suggested Dunkin' Donuts, which in hindsight, if I had done that oh, back geez. then, I'd probably be better <laughs> you off. You could have just than, printed yeah, money exactly. at that point. <laughs> um, but what I took was, that's not me. Like, mm. I'm creative. I'm an mm -hmm. original thinker. So just replicating something else. But it led to me thinking, well, what if there was an agency 
that I could figure out how to buy uh, or figure out how to be a successor to. And that led me to what had been called O'Neill Griffin Bodie forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been called Griffin Bodie and Krauss when I joined, founded in 1975 in New Hampshire, was always kind of a dominant player in New Hampshire, but a bit more on the traditional side, you know, banks, hospitals, suits, ties, lots of, right. you know, uh, handshake kind of deals. It was advertising and marketing, but it was more, it was less, I guess, purely creative and more strategic and business consulting and mm, things along okay. those lines. Okay. And so the reality was I was a big brand digital guy. So it was a good yin and yang. And so Pat Griffin and I, when we met, uh, he was the sole owner at the time and we got along really well and kind of realized that there was some mutual benefit that if I could perhaps uh, modernize his agency, um, then he might have a successor uh, to, to what he was looking to do. And it was not easy. Uh, but that's ultimately what ended up happening. And I think he would say, I, I just saw him recently, it worked out well for both of us. Um, you know, I was able to get a bit of a head start on having an agency that I was intrigued by and able to evolve it. And I mean, there's still some employees there today that were there back in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was able to go off to, and do his next thing. We'll be right back. New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute's 8th Annual Conference will be held at the Grapponi Conference Center in Concord, New Hampshire on Monday, October 16th. The conference, titled Tackling Workforce Challenges and Strengthening Economic Security, will feature leading policy experts and bring together New Hampshire decision makers, business and community leaders, advocates, journalists, and concerned citizens to examine cross-cutting issues impacting all Granite Staters and discuss effective policy solutions. Learn more and register at nhfpi.org slash conference. All right, we are back. So you have seen and been part of the evolution of online marketing and yes. and, and so it's still a mystery for many companies today about how do you tap into such a massive, diverse and diffused audience and cut through the noise to get people's attention. So how do you and your firm do that? What are some of the the things companies need to consider to be really effective in their marketing? So we rarely start with thinking about tactics. Mm-hmm. Like we, we rarely think like, is this going to be TV, radio, print, outdoor, media, digital, whatever. It almost always starts with a concept or an idea that's rooted in what makes something genuine, different, and appealing. And so what we find is if the creative idea is big enough, then it can theoretically be executed a lot of different ways. And that may or may not be advertising. Like in some ways, it's creating your own media channels like you're doing here. Uh, In other ways, it's getting publicity or PR or getting other people to talk about you. And then in some cases, it's, it's buying things. So we have a lot of examples of working with clients where we come up with a big idea and that big idea helps build and grow the brand, even though the advertising paid dollars behind it might not be overly significant. Um, I can give a few examples if you'd like. I was going to say, yeah, talk about what differentiates GYK Antler in in this marketplace. It is a very well-known entity in New Hampshire and beyond. And, you know, some of the brands you're working with and the work that you're doing that differentiates them. So what I would say differentiates us is a few things. Uh, One is we're business-minded. 
So although we're creative and although ultimately people are coming to us for big creative ideas, we always take a lot of pride in recognizing what business problem they're trying to solve. And we always look at what if. We look at, all right, well, what if we thought this way or what if we did that? And um, we also are unique in the sense that we're of a size where we can have a lot of skills in-house. Uh, so we're able to have the full strategy side uh, within our team, the full creative side within our team, and then the full production part, and then the full media planning and buying part. So when you're able to think in an integrated fashion like that, and you're not overly concerned about which one of those things are going to be utilized most, you know, a lot of times agencies are so specialized or focused, they're just trying to sell you what they offer uh, or else you're not necessarily the best client for them. And and that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. We're able to be a little bit more what I would call like media agnostic mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the way that we think. Cool. And so, you know, good example, Sweet Baby Ray's, uh, number one barbecue sauce in the world. Uh, they've been our client for probably 15 years. Really? Yes, cool. they have. Um, they. <laughs> I love when you have those, the, the, those really moments because people don't Are you realize- excited by that? Yeah, well, the yeah. thing is, number one, I have them in my fridge. And number two, I'm like- it's so, it's so simple. Yes, you know, it, it's not like big flashy, you nope. know, Newman's own kind of, you know, the graphics and this and that. It, it's sweet baby Ray's. Yes. So the backstory <laughs> on it is, it was a Midwest uh, brand, Chicago. Um, when we started working with them, it was the number three premium barbecue sauce, which <laughs> is a subcategory of barbecue sauce. It was acquired by Ken's Foods which is salad dressing. Sure. Right. They actually are who make Newman's Own, by the mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Uh, they don't market it around the brand, but they, <laughs> they manufacture it. Um, I don't think that's a secret. Um, well, it isn't now. Yeah, it is, no, <laughs> People must know that. Um, you know, they, basically, you know, Ken's is an amazing manufacturing right. company. They manufacture right. for lots of different folks, and they mm-hmm. have a number of their own brands as well. Um, so the biggest key with Sweet Baby Ray's was this concept of being made in the basement. Uh, Ray, you know, is based on a real person and there's a story behind it. Mm -hmm. And the sauce kind of looks like, you know, a a, a more amateur type person made it and put it together. And so I would say the biggest key to success for us working with Sweet Baby Ray's is restraint. Most any company would have said, (laughs) redesign the label, redesign the bottle. Right. We helped plant the sauce being the boss. And that's the whole idea is the sauce is the boss. Everyone should bow down to this sauce because it is the (laughs) ultimate thing. And you can have a lot of fun in barbecue. So for 15 years, we've kept that made in the basement feel. Everything we put out there, instead of looking super slick and super polished, intentionally has that vibe and that style. And they relatively quickly became the number one premium barbecue sauce. For a number of years, they were growing faster than ketchup, mayonnaise, mustard combined. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And now they're the number one barbecue sauce brand in the world. And right out of Manchester, New Hampshire and Boston, we are quietly behind the scenes you know, pulling a lot of the the pieces to help them do that. It's a very strong partnership and collaboration with them. I love that. That's but so the sauce is the boss is the idea. Yeah. That's not a TV ad. That's not a, it could be anything, you know? And it's like, how do you now take that mindset and carry it forward? What are some other brands that you're working with and, and how, you know, other examples of how you've helped them to kind of grow that brand and identity? Well, I'll use a local one. Yeah. Uh, since this is a New Hampshire-based uh, thing, we we love to work with uh, local dominant brands and, and people that are in the area. Uh, we've been fortunate for the last eight years or so to represent BEA, which is uh, Business and Economic Affairs. 
uh, for the state, which is travel tourism, economic development, workforce development, things like that. Um, so if you simplify that, it's the brand of New Hampshire right. to the mm-hmm. outside world, right? Um, so I always felt prior to working with the state that New Hampshire was perpetuating a bit of this small town um, kind of Yankee mentality, um, not super cool, a little too like farmer's market-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is farmer's markets are pretty cool. Yeah, um, they are. But, but, but the, the, the way it was being perpetuated was kind of this like small town, like, you know, yeah. little backwoodsy, whatever. And so uh, the other thing that was fascinating is live free or die, which is our state motto, was like the third rail. No one wanted to touch that from an advertising or marketing <laughs> standpoint. Yes, it's pretty intense. It's a bit over the top. Uh, it was really the or die part of it. That that ultimatum is not something that uh, <laughs> is super welcoming to the rest of the world, right? Either and get so, with the program true. or just end yeah. it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're either in or you're out, pal. So <laughs> what we did is we basically took the positive part of that, the live free part of that, and recognized that that has uh, a concept beyond uh, the tagline for the state. Uh, it's really a mindset, an attitude. And in New Hampshire, the underlying strategy in the way that it's the sauce is the boss for Sweet Baby Ray's, it's variety within proximity for the state of New Hampshire. And so basically what we are touting, and we don't always say that, but what we're saying through the strategy is there are a heck of a lot of things to do here, and it's all really easy to get to. And if you actually look at how we compare to other places in the area, New Hampshire is very different in, in that way. Um, they all have similar attributes, but different. And ultimately, it was the idea of getting that emotional connection across that no sales tax, no income tax, uh, create your own adventure kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, just come here, you'll figure it out. And that's just been what we've written hard uh, through all those channels, you know, targeting tourists, traveling, targeting residents, uh, all those different things. And so if you look at how the brand has evolved, and if you look at the data that backs it up, it attracts a, a broader audience now. It attracts a younger type of uh, person, a, a, a more diverse mix of people looking to do a broader range of things. And we're really proud of how the rooms and meals tax has grown and the, yep. the business taxes have grown. And you know a lot of pieces played into that, but we're happy to have our small seat at the table with uh, kind of the look, feel, tone, style of the state as it relates to those things. It's yeah, a- so I've got to I've got to say like back to our, our conversation from the from the start. Um, that's one of those ads, uh, the the song in that <laughs> ad yes. that I, I actually know. was like, hey, I kind of like that, and I looked it up. You know, I get to the internet, and I'm like, who is that? Who's that artist? And so. Uh, and I just, I love the the feel. I can remember it. I hear it in my head right now. So here's a sort of a nuts and bolts question, but it may be interesting sure. for our, our uh, listeners as well is you've got, you're developing this campaign. Um, you have to, there has to be some sort of music. Yes. Uh, how do you, how did you settle in this case on that particular commercial, on that particular song and artist? And for that matter, like, you know, snippet of that song. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a lot more to it than it might appear. Yeah, I'm uh, sure there is. Yes. I'm sure um, there is. And it's about feel. I mean, the simplest way I can explain it is you're trying to convey an attitude, a personality, a tone, a style, those types of things. So usually, you know, take that particular song. You know you want it to be energetic. You know you want it to be fun. You know you want it to be catchy. 
Um, you know, usually there's some talk about is, is does it sound more like a, a male or a female? Mm-hmm. You know, is it a band? Is it you know? So you kind of narrow down what you think makes the most sense. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's also the significant question of budget. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize <laughs> is you know when you hear a mainstream song in a mm-hmm. commercial, it is a significant, significant investment. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I see this a lot. You know, people will be like, oh, if you just used I don't know, name some huge song in this commercial, it'd be awesome. It's like, yeah, you're never going to get a chance <laughs> to do that. And there goes your budget. You know? um, so thankfully, we've always had music uh, as an interest within our company. Nice. And some of my peripheral ventures are in the mm-hmm. music industry. Mm-hmm. And so we've always had our finger on the pulse of some of the more up-and-coming artists, some of the things that are going on, some of the trends. Um, you know, been fortunate to have some relationships with deep, different people. I wish I could remember. I don't remember exactly how or why we narrowed to that particular song, mm-hmm. but I am proud to report you know, and you just said it, it's, it's been a home run. I oh, mean, that, yeah, that, it's that fan- song, it's fantastic. I, I mean, we even, you know, not to overly share, but I think this is safe to, to say, mm-hmm. we just had a creative session with how we're evolving some of the, the work with the state. And I can tell you that song's not going to change. Yeah. <laughs> good, uh, good, as tempting cool. as it might be to yeah. want to pick something new or something different, it's, it's still resonating really well. We all still love it. And it represents uh, what what's going right. But it's it's not just dumb luck, even though sometimes you can get lucky picking a song. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 exactly. And before we explore, as you mentioned, your other in- business interests mm-hmm. that you've developed, and uh, can you um, talk about about giving our listeners an idea of the size and scope of GYK Antler today? Yes, uh, it's about a hundred people. Uh, our revenue is about thirty-five to forty million, or our billings. Uh, You're among the top one hundred private companies in New Hampshire. We're, yeah, we were on that, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and our revenue is probably about twelve to fifteen million, depending on the year. Um, we've had pretty steady growth. Uh, we experienced what a lot of people did during COVID. Uh, thankfully, we were pretty diversified. So some clients really did well, and some did not. Uh, thankfully, the good outweighed the bu- the bad. Uh, that wasn't the case for everybody, um, but it was a weird few years where it was what we call the COVID blip. Mm. Uh, you know, there were certain revenue lines that increased, but there are also expense lines that decreased. I mean, we weren't going to offices, we weren't paying for travel, entertainment, parking, things along those lines. So the dust still hasn't settled back to normalcy yet. Um, I think this year our revenue is going to dip a bit, uh, and our margins will probably dip a bit. Um, but I think that is the COVID recovery, I guess, kind of happening and the restabilization of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had a kitty litter client as an example during COVID. (laughs) No, this sounds crazy, right? Everyone was adopting pets. Mm -hmm. They're all home with their pet. So they're more conscious of if it smells or doesn't smell. Um, That is one of the biggest lifetime value consumer things that a brand can have. Because if once you pick a kitty litter, you're going to buy it every month for 20 years, right? (laughs) It's true. So the amount of money that was getting spent to market kitty litter of all things was incredible. Well, now you fast forward and that's not <laughs> happening in the same right. way anymore. So, so you know, the, the, you, you take the wins and the losses. And that, that I think is what has to come with somebody in the advertising and marketing businesses. You have to have a thick, thick skin. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, some stuff's going to work great. Some stuff's not. You're going to have to ride the economy and ride the waves and you're going to flex up and flex down as you need to. Wow. Awesome. Um, yeah, let's dive in a little bit to uh, before we have to wrap in a while. But to the these other ventures uh, that you have, one 
uh, I'm particularly interested in because we talked about it before the mics went on uh, is Noble and Cooley Drum Company. And this yes. isn't, uh, you know, this has been around for quite some time. Was it 1846 that it was founded? 1854, you're close. 54, okay. Yes. Um, and how, I guess, how and why? How did this opportunity come up and why? Is it was so it the marketing right one? services businesses uh, are essentially like a law firm model. You're basically mm. like renting your people and your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the good news is, is I got involved doing that at a young age and have the opportunity to continue that here as a core business um, for the long term. At the same time, all these clients are hiring us and paying us this money to build their brands and to build enterprise value for them. And so the idea was, well, we could do some of that ourselves too. Like, like you know, and, and what I was kind of recognizing was a lot of times when you're working with clients, it's a, it's a group think process a bit. So it was a bit like, geez, if we didn't, if we could just do whatever we wanted with certain brands and use different channels and there were passion categories for our team, that could have a win-win situation. Like it could theoretically build something that, you know, I would have that's different than the agency. Uh, it would give people a lot of creativity uh, to be able to have fun. It would allow us to learn and experiment in ways that we couldn't. Um, so worst case scenario, you get a lot from it. Best case scenario, it builds into a really cool different type of business. And so I've always been involved in some way, shape, or form in the music business. A really good friend of mine happens to be the CEO of a medical device company. And he's always been envious of the fact that my career is like pure, like kind of fun, interesting, <laughs> you know, I can dress like this and, and do whatever. He has to wear a suit. So I said, well, what would you do if you could pick one thing. And he said, he, he was pretty emphatic, actually. He said, I would own Noble and Cooley Drum Company. And he had been a drummer. And I said, well, wh- wh- what is that? And I kind of knew of it, um, but I didn't know the whole backstory. And so we reached out to Noble and Cooley Drum Company. And it was a, a family of craftsmen uh, that were trying to transition from the sixth generation to the seventh generation. Oh, wow. Okay. And the business side had gotten away from them a little bit. Uh, huh. The quality of the product had stayed high. The brand reputation had stayed high, but they weren't able to reinvest in their business like they wanted to. Uh, they weren't able to invest in any marketing like they maybe wanted to. And so I had the infrastructure with all the business operations stuff and obviously with the branding and marketing and then with my friend John knowing drums it's like, ah, this could be really interesting. So we acquired essentially a distressed asset mm-hmm. and have dusted it off and uh, have made it what it is today, which is a, a brand in really high demand and us trying to figure out the manufacturing side to produce <laughs> more faster. Because, yeah. I mean, ultimately you can't you know, uh, skimp on the quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really cool. It keeps me in the music game. Yeah. Um, you know, I get to hang out with, musicians and talk music a lot and uh you know they do have a lot of street cred in the category you mentioned we're in this gorgeous studio here in new hampshire right now and uh the engineer said he had noble and coolies in here last week yeah um so that's really cool you hear those stories a lot and so it gives the team uh, we happen to have a lot of musicians that work within the agency um so although there's a distinct operating team that operates uh noble and cooley there's a lot of shared resources Mm. and and everyone has a lot of fun with it nice Nice. And then there's another uh, venture as well. You're an advisor and investor in Torch Pro, a sports media company. What is, um, 
what is the rest of that story? So Torch Pro was founded by Joe Pavelski, who plays for the Dallas Stars, and Matt Fornataro, mm-hmm. who was also a professional hockey player. And what they recognized was when athletes are uh, retiring or moving on from playing their sport, they don't always have a place to put their passion. Uh, and huh. a lot of them want to pay it forward. They want to teach, educate younger audience of people. So you can imagine, uh, for me, this combination of things. Growing up in a sporting goods family, uh, my television production company, Big Brick, was born out of ESPN. So we've historically done a lot of sports-related stuff. I really like uh, Matt Fornataro and, and Joe Pavelski um, and basically helped them create this platform. Torch is the concept of you know, passing the torch, basically, um, to create a sports media company. And so they've been building this thing, creating a lot of content, putting the good work out there. And we've been using some of our resources to help them scale and grow and and figure out where to go with it. So the world is clamoring for that type of feel good. uh, It's sports storytelling, basically, um, from professional athletes paying it forward to young people. Uh, And so I could relate to to that uh, mindset. Right on. So how how did you create bandwidth for all this? Like, talk about what prompted Big Brick to come into being, um, and then continuing the family legacy uh, with York um, or um, yeah, York Athletics. Yeah, York Athletics. You know, any one of those companies would be a lot for someone to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about why you went into these different ventures and then how did you create the bandwidth for that? Yes. It's a, <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know if I've entirely figured it out, mm-hmm. um, but I've made tons of progress on it. I'll use Big Brick as the first example. We as GYK were doing a lot of TV advertising and we were outsourcing all of it. Uh, being an internet guy like I was, social media was on the rise. The need for content was growing. And so I looked at those two things and I said, gee, we really should be taking this TV production more in-house. And then that same team can help produce a lot of this content that the teams need. The challenge was trying to build that on the backs of the existing client base at the time wasn't going to fly because they only had so many needs. And so a college friend of mine, uh, Matt Doyle, is an Emmy Award-winning producer. He was at ESPN for, I think, 13 years. We met at Freshman Orientation, actually, at BU. Uh, He went the journalism route. I went the advertising route. And he did a lot of high-profile stuff. And a lot of those guys want to start their own production companies. But it's almost the mirror problem. Uh, There's only so many big uh, budget ESPN jobs that you're going to have. And the rest of the time, you're going to be spent doing like local pizza shop commercials or something. Yeah. At the same time, those types are not necessarily business savvy, nor do they want to be. Um, and they may or may not have the resources to do it. So I basically said to Matt, I said, well, what if we took the sports stuff, the agency stuff, the ads, the content, and created a production company. And so the first key is have somebody who knows what the heck they're doing to run it. And so that's Matt. So I might have been the business guy behind it, the fund guy, the funder behind it. Um, but he was the one that could own, you know, pulling the teams together, figuring out how it works, how to how to scale it, evolve it. Um, and so ultimately, over time, I've needed to get out from being in the business and getting on the business. And so the way I've done that is by uh, hiring really good people, Um, knowing what I know, knowing what I don't know, uh, not being afraid to show vulnerability, uh, 
finding people who know things better than I do in certain areas, giving them shared motivation to bother trying. Uh, and so ultimately, as I mentioned, my day-to-day, I, I view as somewhat similar to what it was you know, 15 years ago. I'm juggling between different brands and different people and different opportunities. It's just my point of view on it and the role I'm playing is a little bit different. And the teams that I need to rely on are larger and the infrastructure is more important to keep in mind. Um, doesn't mean everything always goes well. I mean, the reality is, is pretty much every business had to adapt and evolve during COVID in significant ways. Um, some of the things I'm involved with have done phenomenal. Some of them are, are s- struggling a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the reality. I think I also learned long ago, I mean, if I had a separate bio of all the failed stuff I did, <laughs> it would probably be three times as long, you know? But, but people don't talk about that stuff. But that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how you figure stuff out. It's true. And, um, I'm very comfortable talking about those things and realizing I need to learn from those things. It's not always fun when you're in it. Right. Uh, but it's part of the journey. What have been some of the critical lessons you've learned from what's failed? Leadership, uh, having the proper leader in person, um, ultimately owning something. Like it's hard sometimes to have somebody who is just like a higher gun or just um, looking at something as a job, um, especially with some of these creative ventures. They need to have like a passion for it and be really interested and intrigued by it because ultimately the audience who's buying something of, of that's creative and quality sees right through it if it's not. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing. Um, secondarily is proper capital or, or, or money behind it. Uh, I've gone into a lot of things that I didn't think were going to be very expensive and became expensive fast. Mm. Um, and knowing when to turn the spigot off, as somebody has told me, is a really smart <laughs> thing to know what to do. Yep. Um, I've definitely let stuff linger too long in the past and then kicked myself for it or regretted it. Um, I also arguably have maybe pulled the plug on stuff uh, too fast as well. So trying to figure out uh, you know, what the right balance is. So I think it's, it's people and leadership, capital, and then... <sighs> I don't know. I've gotten a little less. I I like the idea of taking something that you know works and evolving it to be better than I necessarily do to like reinvent something. Mm -hmm. Like there's people out there that are more like entrepreneurs who are inventing things or creating something totally from scratch. I used to try to do some of that. And I find it's not like I like history, heritage, you know, a lot of the things I'm involved with have a backstory. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to manufacture the story. Right. Um, it, they, they might have an infrastructure or a team. It just needs some molding and some coaching and some guidance. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I've, I've realized is best for me. Very cool. Very cool. Um, we are definitely going to have to have you back and we'll have that, you know, real grounding conversation about your failures someday. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll really look forward oh, to that. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, right. We right. might have to have a right. little uh, libations prior yeah. to that conversation. <laughs> but um, this has been this has been uh, amazing. And everything that you're you're involved in, um, obviously, your your creativity and your love for what you're doing is is very apparent. Um, and it's great that, you know, things are successful to the level that they are. Uh, Travis York is a very creative entrepreneur, uh, part of, of course, the York Creative Collective and all of its brands. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, talking a little bit of shop and uh, and letting us know who you are. It's been really great. Really fun. Thank you both for having me. Really yeah. good time and a beautiful spot. We love it here. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.